I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles here in the wild, wild west. And as the warm wind hits my face, I walk across stained concrete. I cry tears of joy on Flower Street. I watch families dancing on their porches on Christmas Eve. I smile widely and as I move through the city, my heart beats swiftly as sirens beat by me. I revel in the sadness, my soul is deep. I take full responsibility, give me everything. It hurts, it's so beautiful. We have that universal, soulful, multicultural, emerging worldwide tribe people. I'm alive in Los Angeles. And I'm alive in Los Angeles where there are more angles than isosceles. Citywide topographies undulate across massive landscape. We move from chain link to palatial gates into separate economic states with rising birth rates below hilltops in the streetscapes. One can barely even equivocate these fluctuations in rent that are so evident all across from block to block to block to block. Extravagance and adversity interlock. Palatial spots, crosswalks, burrito shops. Housekeepers are hanging out at bus stops. The country club is all walled off and the city's blowing up like a Molotov. Even when I'm in the shower, I'm hearing the horn song. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. And the neon crowns glow above the city of angels. Haze hovers after another nuclear sunset. I love it all. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I am alive in Los Angeles. LA! Hello and welcome to Here in LA, St. Andrew's Square Edition. Today, we talk with Mike the Poet. As you can hear, he is super talented, wise, and knows LA inside and out. He's lived in almost every neighborhood you can imagine, and uh, we're so lucky to have him. Today we're gonna talk about the great LA poet, Mr. Charles Bukowski, the poet laureate from LA, Amanda Gorman, bookstores, and oh my God, sushi. And yes, I will get him to read a few more of his poems, and even that one again, to make your ears delighted. So get ready for Mike the Poet. Hey, everybody. I am with Mike the Poet, a.k.a. Mike... Songson. Songson. Yeah, Mike Songson. Mike, thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you, Tony, for having me, brother. I don't think I'm going to get too many poets in this uh, podcast. So this is fantastic. Man, I'm glad to be here, bro. <laughs> We're going to be representing St. Andrew's Square, which is... Is it in Koreatown? Is yeah, it next to Koreatown? Like Western and First. Uh, there's the Nat King Cole post office there. Oh, and yeah. I, I had an apartment there on Gramercy Place for a few years. Uh -huh. And uh, I've chose that neighborhood in particular because this was a time period when I had begun in the first those few years writing a ton of poems about L.A. I mean, I've been writing poems about L.A. since I was a teenager, but I was in my early 20s at this time. And... My friends and I, we were just out every single night doing poetry and going to this dive bar, Frank and Hanks at Western and Fifth. And, and that area was a major part of, you know, they talk about your rite of passage. That was my coming of age. And uh, my buddies and I in the late 90s were, were I, lived, I lived in that area at First and Gramercy. And all we were doing was poetry and working odd jobs and freelancing and had low rent at the time and just made enough to get a drink at the bar and keep the lights on. <laughs> so you were just about to be 21 or you just turned oh, no, 21? I was about 24, 25, 26. 24, 25, okay. I had graduated from UCLA a couple years before, but I, I wasn't trying to get a corporate job. I was working as a tour guide. And oh, I, yeah. I've been a tour guide for 25 years. I don't do it as much anymore. I'm, I'm primarily teaching and writing these days. But uh, in my early 20s, uh, when I graduated from UCLA, I didn't want to get a corporate job. And I saw this ad that said, 
recent college graduates that love history and geography. And, and I ended up getting this tour guiding job that went from L.A. to San Francisco, the Grand Canyon, Vegas, Zion, Yosemite. And it would go on these five and six day trips. And from that time, I had before I was considering going to graduate school at urban planning. So I was reading all these you know, Mike Davis and Jane Jacobs and Lewis Mumford and, you know, John, I had discovered Jonathan Gold and I had met Linnell George and all these different people. And so I was this young guy in his early 20s just consuming everything I could about L.A. And meanwhile, you know, going to poetry venues and then later on going to hip hop clubs and punk shows. And it was a whole kind of a time period. And rent was low enough that you could do it at the time. And the tour guiding job, I'd be gone for a few days. And then when I'd come home, do poetry for a few days and go back out on the road and, um it was, you know, we were, I, I have to admit, we were under the spell of bohemianism and Bukowski. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've since, I've since, you know, I have a wife and a kid, you know, kids now and I'm, I'm a professor, but it was, but all of those formative days were what brought me here. And, uh, well, Bukowski it, had a, a daughter and mm -hmm, got married mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. did all those things, had a, had a real job. Mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. so, um, Let's let's talk about Bukowski real quick since you bring him up. Yeah. Um, here we are. Pretty my, darn close to where he lived. Yeah. We're, we're in my courtyard in East Hollywood. Uh, Bukowski Court on DeLong Delong Pre. Yeah. Uh, DeLong Pre is um, maybe a half mile away from yeah, here. Yeah, man. And um, and so he he walked around this area a lot and wrote. A ton in that little right, cottage you right had here. Over there. You know, and it's funny because I number one, I, I'm not alone when I did when I say this, but I read as much Bukowski as I could from about nineteen to twenty four, twenty five, and I still pick him up from time to time. Um, but you know, he was the first guy that sort of gave me permission to, you know, you could write about anything. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, coming out of you know, traditionally poetry was taught as Robert Frost and, That's and right. whatnot. And so for me, Bukowski and then the spoken word poetry scene that I grew up in, they were revelations to me that, you know what, you can write about anything and you can write about the it, daily. It wasn't. Yeah. Bukowski, I, I agree with you. Uh, open the door that it didn't have to be this elegant thing about <laughs> nature and or super deep mm -hmm. or you didn't have to be in Paris like Hemingway. <laughs> you could write about Skid Row in, mm -hmm. in L.A. or mm -hmm. Hollywood mm -hmm. and getting your ass beat at the dive club <laughs> and just taking a bath. Having your heart broke. Yeah. yeah. And, and and so where did you first read Bukowski? Because he's you, not taught in school. You know what? I discovered him. I believe it was my freshman year at UCLA in about 92, 93. Um, it was a class? No, no. You know, I, I just, we were... We fancied ourselves bohemians and, you know, and I had other friends that were poets and people passed books around. And I think I discovered Bukowski around my freshman year at UCLA. And, I, you know, it's funny because I think he died a, two, a year or two later because I think he died in 94. I think he yeah. died my second year. And I was discovering him right about the time that he passed. Yeah. But in future future years, I met plenty of people that knew him. And oh. um there's an older poet named Michael C. Ford who's still alive, who's like 82, and Ford 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 went to UCLA with Jim Morrison, and mm. he was in Jack Hirschman's poetry class with Ray Manzarek, and and I'd be driving around with Ford later on, and he'd be like, "Yo, I had a burrito with Bukowski there, you know, Sunset at Alvarado or something." And so I met a lot of these older folks that had kind of, you know, rubbed elbows with him yeah. and everything. But uh, Bukowski was was a revelation, and I mean, I was such a diehard that I I saw in one of his books that he had grown up at. 
Longwood around between Crenshaw and La Brea and Adams in Washington. And he went to what's now Johnny Cochran Middle School. I think it was called Mount Vernon Junior High School at the time or something. But he went to that school and and he went to Los Angeles High School a year. He was the year following Ray Bradbury. Mm. And so like... We would go, we were so diehard, we would go look at people's addresses. And, you know, when you talk about Sunset and Pre, you know, that's, my buddies and I would do those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I, I discovered him also in college mm-hmm. at the library, just the, 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 the spines of his books. The titles, of, huh? of, of Black Sparrow uh, Press mm-hmm. were just interesting enough that it caught my eye mm-hmm. as I was procrastinating in the library. Mm-hmm. I should have been studying. Mm-hmm. And I picked up probably women. And <laughs> I remember reading And I that. start reading it, and I'm like, this is a little bit dirty, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Thank you. And finished it off really fast, you know? And you could read in a day or two, man. You just zip right through them, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in the poetry circles, because you're, you're deeper in it than I am, um, is he is he respected or you, because I get I get a mixed bag when I when I talk. No, about You know him. what? That's a great question. And there was a book uh, written a few years ago by a great poetry scholar named Lawrence Goldstein, who's like at Michigan State, who actually grew up in Culver City, and he wrote a chapter titled "How Good or How Bad Is Charles Bukowski's Poetry." And he spoke. He started the chapter in the same way that you and I speak of that when he initially read Bukowski, he fell in love and he loved it, and then he he later on said that Bukowski published over 1000 poems and it was very uneven there are very there are moments of brilliance and there are some poems of his that are just dynamite yeah but then it got to the point where he was so popular that people would just take anything of his even if it wasn't as good yeah and his uh, his columns with uh, it was the Invisible City, and then he had a column, I think it was called The Notes of a Dirty Old Man with the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Free Press in the yeah. early 70s. And those columns became so popular. Uh, City Lights, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti published him, I mean, as well as Black Sparrow Press. I mean, he had multiple presses publishing him. And, of course, as we all know, he became that cult figure in Barfly and Mickey Rourke yeah. and everything else. But so Bukowski, this, this is a whole can of worms, but I'll, I'll try to talk about it in a um, – <laughs> I've I've talked a lot about I've actually been halfway in between the spoken word and the more working class poetry and the academic poetry world. And in more recent years, I've I've become a little more in the middle. But initially, I was more totally spoken word, more more working class, more the American idiom, William Carlos Williams and the direct speech. And let's write about the city and let's write about working class people and let's write about women and let's write about our feelings and our family history. Um, I wasn't so much on that T.S. Eliot. Um, as I've gotten older, I, I now can appreciate it all. And, and uh, I, I'm still a little more on one side. But I, I think, you know, as you know, as a scholar, you have to be well versed on everything. And so I did go to grad school in my late 30s and I did get a master's in English and history. And I, hmm. but I was a street poet first. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you want to? Uh... Yeah, here's a quick one right here. Okay. Uh, title Running Around the City. My autobiography, Laced with Poetry, accelerated at 18, running around the city. UCLA sociology, understanding urban planning, jumping geography, creative nonfiction, flipping spoken word diction, backpack rap, underground hip hop, garage band, punk rock, new left review, Kerouac blues, Bukowski coffeehouse cruise, open mic news, choose your own adventure. Enter the stage from the page, wordplay for days, reading every day about ancestors and ongoing oral history, always listening, keeping my ear around sacred ground, every part of town I could be found. By the late 90s, I wanted to write professionally, but I wasn't quite sure how or where to do it, so I started hitting open mics anywhere I could. 
while in the daytime giving city tours and freelance writing about neighborhoods and local music. Every year I was moving from 18 to 30, Westwood, Sawtell, Culver City, Hollywood, Pico, Koreatown, Inglewood, Monterey Park. Friendships, the heart, expansion in art, finding peace in public space and architecture, wishing the weather a window of inner work. I did an internet search for self-worth. I found it on my shirt written in my heart, running around the city kickstarted the art. Nice. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, brother. <laughs> running around the city. That's, the, that, that's gonna be the first poem in my next book. When you write, do you type it? Do you use your computer? Do you write by hand? I write by hand, and then, of course, you know, take it to the laptop later. But I, I'm pretty analog. It's funny. I was talking to one of my buddies from UCLA the other day, and, uh, um, you know, we were we – were, Al Gore came to UCLA, I want to say, my second or third year and did this big internet conference. And I remember it was maybe my third year at UCLA. I had a professor that said, everybody needs to get an email. And we're like, e what the hell is an email? <laughs> You know, and of course, two, three years later, everybody in the world had an email. But, yeah. but uh, as you know, 95, 96, 97, some people were more ahead. I mean, I think my stepdad was on the Internet in 91 or 92. And my one of my roommates in college was on freshman year. But I don't think I was on until about my third year. Yeah. Um, but so I'm, I'm pretty analog and I got a lot of buddies that are vinyl, you know, DJs and vinyl record collectors. I still like hard copies. My wife wishes I would read digital. She wishes I would read on a Kindle or an iPad. But yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty analog. But, of course, I also teach. And so I, I do get down on a laptop later on. But I initially start with the, with the notebooks. Where do you teach at? Woodbury University in Burbank. Uh-huh. And where do, where do you and your family live now? Monterey Park. So that's not a bad commute. No, it's not so bad. Yeah, you know, once you get past Dodger Stadium and Lincoln Heights, it's pretty good. Yeah. What's uh, what's living in Monterey Park like? You know what? My wife grew up there, and, and I love it. It was some place that I accidentally sort of landed in because my wife had grown up there, and, you know, um, just circumstances came that way. But uh, it's so funny because when I was at UCLA, I had a professor, urban planning professor, who had written a book about Monterey Park, and I'd studied it, and it was first city in America to have an Asian majority, and... Um, it was an interesting. I didn't know of, that. Yeah, in the late '80s, it was the first city in America to have an Asian majority. In the U.S. Yes, and um, is your wife Asian? She's yes, yes, she's Japanese. Yeah, Japanese. Yeah, actually, half Japanese, half Korean. Her father was Korean, but he passed when she was younger, so she has more of a Japanese cultural. Um, but she is half half. Yeah. So, do you know some good sushi spots in Monterey Park? You know, yes, my in-laws used to own one. Uh, they're retired now, you know, uh, but they owned a sushi. Wait a second! For like twenty plus years in Monterey Park. What a Park. score! Yeah, we we had a lot of fun, and my wife had formerly been a flight attendant, and um, actually, you know, Mike the poet. Wait a second, stewardess. Whose parents own a sushi shop? <laughs> Did you just think you had? We were having a lot of fun. Won you know, the lottery. You know what's funny is we were. Uh, you know now now we're pretty tame. You know domestic parents and whatnot. But we we did have a lot of fun in our niche. Uh, we were you know together four or five years before we had my daughter and uh -huh. and. Um, did you get to fly the world with her? Uh, enough, enough. We went to Japan a few times, and you know, and 
Um, at the time, also, I had about three jobs where I was tour guiding and I started part-time teaching and I was doing freelance journalism. But we we did have a lot of fun together. And, wow. Uh, we've been we've been married 13 years. So you, you say you say that as if having a child ends the fun. No, no. You know, actually, to be honest <laughs> with you, having the kid, having my two kids, gave me extra focus. And I mean, I um, I try to say this discreetly, but I think in some ways I had so much fun out in the city that now. <laughs> Poetry is my social life, you know, and, and writing and connecting with cats like you. But we're, I, I go to I go home a lot earlier than I used to. I'm getting right up now at the time I used to be coming up. I mean, I, I'm, I'm I, I get up now at the time I used to be coming home. <laughs> right. Uh, let, let me ask you then about being a, a married poet, because I don't know about you, but the reason I wrote poems as a young man was to impress the ladies. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, I mean. I will say there was about a 10 year period where, you know, all my, you know, my girlfriends, I had, we're, we're, we're artists or poets. My wife is a painter now, you know, but fortunately we, you know, we got together and stayed together, but we were very much this poem, as I talked about Kerouac and Bukowski, the art scene was, was my stomping ground, was my beat. And, and so, um, I think the po poetry is where I did find my identity, you know, cause there was mm -hmm. a time in the, in my early to mid twenties, I wanted to get more writing jobs. I wanted to do different things, but as you know, nobody wants to hire you when you're a writer when you're until you're about thirty, you know, or you know, maybe you, if you went to the Columbia <laughs> School of Journalism, you know, and, and and different things. I had graduated from UCLA, and I'd had some great professors, and I had a few little clips, and I had a few things, but um, so in this poem I talked about, well, I wanted to write professionally, but I didn't know, quite know what to do. So I went to a million open mics, and eventually things started happening. Somebody would hear me do a poem, invite me somewhere. I started getting invited to all these schools and then one of the schools offered me a job and then and then I was also tour guiding and then little by little it was like a very very gradual thing but um I think you know um many of my friends were were not just poets musicians DJs painters artists and we were all coming out of divorced families and and in the 90s that scene was our chosen family and so I think a lot of us guys and girls um and I still have a bunch of sisters in poetry that are all my homegirls and that I have known for 10, 15, So, so really years. you found a full community. You, you, were, you were doing better than just me who was just trying to get a, a, a girl to smile. You were actually looking at a bigger picture. Well, you know, it was, I mean, some of it was, was that we were all, I look back now, I mean, we were all kind of thirsty coming out. Like the riots were the week after my, you know, the riots, oh. you know, like I was a high school senior when the riots happened. Really? And, and so like the 90s, the 90s, well, you remember the OJ trial and the, the Northridge earthquake. And yeah. there was this sort of uncertainty in L.A. And so the arts became kind of our safety net. And and so a whole lot of things happened from that. And uh you know, I remember, you know, I'd go do a couple poems and somebody would be like, oh, that, you know, I, my grandfather grew up in L.A. too or something or, you know, and, and I, I, I do a poem about something. And, and, and we so I found ways to relate to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I I had my girl crazy phase. I very much, you know, I can relate to what you're saying, you know, <laughs> but uh, it was it was a whole thing of like really kind of searching for identity, you know, mm -hmm. Um Let's let's talk about um, where you were reading in the '90s because today, looking at your social media, and you have a very good social media presence. I saw that you were at the Cerritos Library, one of my favorite libraries in yeah. LA. You were in Long Beach. Yeah. Um, you were, I think, up here in the Hollywood area. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, the the 
uh, Boyle Heights. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What is that? The graphics? What's that graphics place oh, called? Oh, self-help graphics. Yeah. So you were really still all over the city. Where were you reading in the 90s? You know, one of the first places I read, aside from like apartment parties and, and dorm rooms, you know, well, we were in Venice. We were in West L.A. We were in Culver City. There was uh, the Onyx Cafe in, in Los Feliz. Yeah. Was one of the first places I read. Um, Rest in peace. Yeah, man. The Onyx. Like Beck played there and stuff. Beck played there when he was. Yeah. You know, there's a guy named S.A. Griffin. And have you ever heard of Steve Aby? I don't think so. Steve Aby is an awesome poet and, and, and definitely needs to be more well known. He was one of Lewis McAdams' favorite poets. And actually, Steve Aby was the was Lewis McAdams' uh, son's junior high school teacher. Ah. And Lewis McAdams actually turned me on to Steve Aby. Steve Aby and I are now buddies, and he lives oh, okay. in El Sereno. But uh, right. Steve Aby knew Beck. You know, Beck blurbed his one of his books, you know. Um, nice. But there was these guys that were five, five seven years older than me, and uh, S.A. Griffin's probably 15, 20 years older than me, but all these older poets that were pretty cool to my friends and I and, and mm -hmm. kind of welcomed us in. And so... We were all we were all over the place. Um, yeah. And go ahead. In in one of your, in one of your poems, you mentioned uh, midnight special books yeah. and what. Uh, speaking of Los Feliz, what Skylight used to be before Chatterton's. that. Yeah. And and it made me think that. Yeah, it's heartbreaking that a lot of these independent bookstores are gone. Mm -hmm. But I would I would think especially for a poet mm -hmm. who might have chapbooks or just mm -hmm. small self-published mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to get seen on Amazon than it would to be on like a poetry uh, rack at one of these independent bookstores. You know, stores. Midnight Special was fantastic. And, you know, I mean, it's funny. I try not to single any of them out, but Midnight Special, I bought a lot of books there. And I mean, I bought an equal amount of Skylight, too, you know, um, but Midnight Special was dynamite. And from the time I was a kid, my dad would always drive me up to uh, Bodie Tree mm -hmm. and uh, Acres of Book and Looks. Oh, my God. Yeah. You were in Long Beach the other day mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you were talking about um, uh, a row. Oh, yeah. Gallery. Uh, retro Row. Fourth, retro it, Row. Hey, Fourth Street in Long Beach is a killer little area. And it made me think of Acres of Books, mm -hmm. which is also closed. Mm -hmm. And how unique that place was mm -hmm. like they they would give you if you remember they would give you a flashlight for one of their corners because <laughs> they kept expanding that they couldn't even put lights in this one little corner <laughs> so they'd hand you a flashlight so you could see the books over there yeah. i mean that's the polar opposite of where we're at today with yeah. bookstores right yeah and yeah you know what it's funny acres of books was awesome and i gosh i want to say it was 06 or 07 when they finally closed, I yeah. think. And I remember getting walking out of there with just a box of books. But you bring up used bookstores, and man, like the Iliad in North Hollywood is one of the last ones left. That's right. You know, I mean, there's still a few here and there, but there's not like there used to be. No. The rent in this city just skyrocketed in the last. I mean, L people say, you know, LA used to be kind of affordable. Totally affordable. <laughs> I mean, it, it was. It, that was kind of the charm of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what happened because people move away. People get married. Mm -hmm. People move east to mm -hmm. have a, a mm -hmm. wife and a, mm -hmm. and a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet something happened. Maybe, maybe they just stopped building apartments. Yeah, we definitely have had a housing shortage. And um, you know what's funny? I mean, in a lot of ways, I guess what they said recently was the first year ever that more people left than came. Did you Have right. you heard that? I heard that, but the rent still went up. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, we've had this housing shortage for a long time and people just kept coming. And meanwhile, a whole lot of either natives or people that have been here a long time might move out to the valley or might move out to um, Lakewood or, or, or Alhambra. Or... Let's talk a little bit more about poetry in 2022 yeah which i can't believe that we're even in this year yeah. and it's almost over yeah um i would think a place like tiktok might be good yeah uh instagram reels might be good yeah am i crazy where where do, where do you get your best audiences uh on online you know what it's funny because I've meant to do it even more, but I mean, I grew up as a performance poet. I mean, I've done a little bit of reels and I've done some YouTube, but you know, I, not as much as I should. I, I need to do even more of that. But uh, I mean, we would do poems on rooftops and I've performed with jazz bands and, you know, and opened up for punk bands and hip hop groups. And, and, and so like I was very much in the spoken word performance poetry scene and, and I still am to an extent, but I'm also, you know, moved towards getting published too, just for the longevity of it. But uh I actually intend to do even more more video, and I'm actually shooting a couple poetry videos right now with a friend of mine as we speak. Are punk audiences open to poetry? Yeah, you know what, Rollins was true, but also not just Rollins. But, was, but he's also Rollins. Yeah, there's a lot of. Lewis McAdams was telling me about this in the early '80s. The performance art scene, the poetry scene, they used to, spoken word poetry was kind of considered performance art at the time, and and so. I mean, I was more so even in the spoken word and hip hop, underground hip hop scene, but I, I opened a few times for some punk bands. I mean, this was like, you know, a long time ago and, and, and there was there was an overlap. There was an overlap. And uh, I mean, I remember I saw Rage Against the Machine and Sublime at UCLA when they were just becoming famous. And I mean, this was years before I ever was performing anything. But my friends and I were at all kinds of we saw Green Day as they were becoming famous, all yeah. these groups. And you know that. Do you ever do uh, The Moth? You know, I have never done The Moth, but I have literally read poems at most of the bookstores around LA, yeah, mini galleries, uh, uh, almost every neighborhood. I've never done the moth, and I've did the KPCC Unheard LA, mm -hmm. and I've done a few of the storyteller venues. And it's funny because the storyteller and spoken word are overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing. But they overlap. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you talk about being published. Are are publishers looking for poets? You know, it's ironically, uh, poetry is now selling more than it ever has. What? But it's been very gradual. And have you heard of Rupi Carr? No. Um, look her up later. She's literally sold a couple million books, and she's a woman in her late twenties. But uh, probably the two two of the most popular poets in the world right now are Rupi Carr and Amanda Gorman. From L.A. Yeah, and, and Amanda Gorman, um, I was one of the judges of the Youth Poet Laureate Contest for several years. Really? My, my buddy Doug Brown and I were judges. And uh, the year Amanda Gorman was selected as the L.A. Youth Poet Laureate in 2015, I was one of the judges. Um, but it's funny because Amanda is awesome, but Amanda is also um, a product of 20, 25 years of... Um, there's been a whole spoken word poetry scene, and there's been a lot of people like me that are also teachers and poets, and... Uh, you know, much respect to Amanda. She's great. She went to Harvard. She did her thing. There's a, there's there's more Amanda Gormans out there than we think. There's, really? I, like I had a student, Monique Mitchell, 
that could rock the house just like Amanda, you know, and, and there's others, there's, there's many, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great young writers out there because when you're a young person, what's more compatible than poetry for expressing your emotions. And I think with Amanda, there was just a, a perfect storm, a perfect synthesis of many, many things that helped her become who she is and, and uh, more power to her because she has, she's really, she epitomizes this thing where, um, uh, originally there was a big division in poetry and I think you intuitively knew this uh, a long time ago when I first started the academic poets did not like spoken word oh the academic poets did not like performance poetry the academic poets thought that the performance poets were not literary mm-hmm it was a gimmick. Yeah, and they thought they were. They thought we were all actors. Mm-hmm. But I was the whole time. I was reading. You know, I mean, my buddy. You know, we were reading Kerouac, and we were reading Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka and the Black Arts Movement, and mm-hmm. we were into hip hop and and more of the social justice element and kind of the 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 ethos of that. But um, as as if slam poetry and performing while you're delivering it is easier. Then just being Bukowski with a six pack and kind of slurring over your. Well, you know, it's funny because what ended up happening was a bunch of because of things like HBO Deaf Poetry Jam, mm-hmm. because of a number of other things, there are a bunch of poets that started out watching HBO Deaf Poetry Jam that ended up getting MFAs too. Yes, and they're all 10, 15 years younger than me, right. and Amanda's twenty years younger than me. <laughs> you know, and and so so people like Amanda and some of these guys, she can perform like nobody's business, but she also went to Harvard. And mm-hmm. and she and she has studied poetry and she was mentored partially by a friend of mine named Ashaki Jackson. She was mentored by a few things, a few people. Ashaki Jackson is an award-winning poet who worked with Kaveh Kanem, uh, this avant-garde African-American group of poets. And Right Girl has mentored all these young women writers, and that's a great organization. There's a lot of great organizations. So there's a whole lot of young people that came up with both the performance element and the academic element. And like I briefly used to work with the Git Lit players, and the Git Lit players have this whole thing where they have young people memorize classical poetry, but then they have them write their own response to Langston Hughes or Ah. write a response to Walt Whitman. And, and so like my poem, I'm Alive in Los Angeles, in a lot of ways was like just Walt Whitman in an early 90s hip hop and kind of a marriage of those two. What was the one that you just read for you? Running Around the City. Can you give us uh, I'm Alive in, in yeah, Los Angeles? you got it. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles here in the wild, wild west. And as the warm wind hits my face, I walk across stained concrete. I cry tears of joy on Flower Street. I watch families dancing on their porches on Christmas Eve. I smile widely, and as I move through the city, my heart beats swiftly as sirens beat by me. I revel in the sadness. My soul is deep. I take full responsibility. Give me everything. It hurts. It's so beautiful. We have that universal, soulful, multicultural, emerging worldwide tribe people. I'm alive in Los Angeles. And I'm alive in Los Angeles where there are more angles than isosceles. Citywide topographies undulate across massive landscape. We move from chain link to palatial gates into separate economic states with rising birth rates below hilltops in the streetscapes. One can barely even equivocate these fluctuations in rent that are so evident all across from block to block to block to block. Extravagance and adversity interlock. Palatial spots, crosswalks, burrito shops. Housekeepers are hanging out of bus stops. The country club is all walled off and the city's blowing up like a Molotov. Even when I'm in the shower, I'm hearing the horn song. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. And the neon crowns glow above the city of angels. Haze hovers after another nuclear sunset. I love it all. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I'm alive in Los Angeles. I am alive in Los Angeles. L.A. Thank you, Tony. 
off the top of his head he gave you that one. <laughs> Is it hard to memorize your stuff? I used to memorize one poem a month. Um, I need to get back to doing that again. It's it's not as hard, you know. You know, just like you know the words to your favorite songs. It's it's not that hard. Really, to... two of them. <laughs> but again, I smoke weed. <laughs> Do you have anything that hurts your brain's memory? Um, I used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 at one point in time, but it's a, but it's sharp now. Yeah, you know, and uh, um, when you write these, do you think God? I need to memorize this because you know, then it comes off so, so much stronger. Yes, yeah, some you know. I mean, I really back when my wife was a flight attendant, and really before my kids, I used to memorize one new poem a month. I probably now still have about 30 to 35 poems memorized, but uh, there's two, like this running around the city poem that I read earlier. I'm going to memorize this one pretty soon. And there's, before uh, the semester starts again in five, six weeks, I'm going to uh, memorize one or two pieces or something. Back to young people, though, real quick. Are young people into this? You know what? More young people are into poetry than you think. But also, I, and I'm not the only guy who does this. My buddy Doug Brown, my friend Tracy. Um, in some ways, they need a good introduction. Mm. And and um, I've had a lot of it. Woodbury has this really great architecture program and has a really great animation and game design. Um and, and, and Woodbury is almost more like an art school, but a bunch of students do not know that they like poetry until they take my class because right. I teach in interdisciplinary studies, but I always have students doing little, little poems, a little bit, just a little quick writes. I call them quick writes. And we start off the class like a little warm up. Yeah. And I have them write, or sometimes I'll do something like draw your map of LA or I'll say like, um, write, is there an, was there a venue? Was there a place that you always went to? Was there a restaurant that you went to with your family? Or can you write about a sacred place in your life? And then they'll write about, oh, you know, well, my grandfather proposed to my grandmother at Point Furman. Or, mm -hmm. oh, you know, uh, this restaurant was where my parents met. Or, And so I have students doing these kind of little creative writing assignments. And I always tell these architecture students, you know, you got to write these proposals. And if you write a little 250-word proposal, and you sneak some poetry in there, even just the title, <laughs> you might be more likely to get the job than somebody else. Yeah. And so I tell them that, you know, poetry is style and it's just a little bit of flavor. And, and so um, also I think maybe one of my strengths, and, and as I said, I'm not the only guy who does this, but is that I don't give a whole lot of rules. The main rule I give is have fun, try to use the five senses, Mm. Um, use the five senses, make us see something, make us hear something, make us taste something, give us a vo evocative, something that's evocative and, and have fun with it. And a lot of the architects say that, um, I gave them the freedom that they needed. And, and that, so they, they write this description of this green architecture project that they're using, that they're doing with California native plants and this and that, that I, I help them find the romance in it. And so, so what I what I say to a lot of people is even if you don't want to be a poet or a published writer, to know a little bit of poetry, you know, to write about your grandmother, you know, to write a poem. I've had a lot of students write a tribute poem to their mom or something mm. like you're still like you're savoring life. And it's as we now get into more of, you know, mindfulness and, and trying to be appreciative of things. 
poetry is one of the best methods for that. When they uh, turn in their poems, do you read them out loud to the class or, or do they? Read I, I try to make them read them out loud. You know what? I mean, I'll say, I'll be honest with you. One of my main techniques as a teacher, I do a lot of open mic in my class because I grew up in open mics and open mics helped me learn how to be a writer. I, I try to make students read them and I don't ever force anybody to do it, but inevitably some of them have so much fun and we do uh, every, every school I've ever taught at, we do open mics. So at Woodbury, we do one called verse come verse serve and uh, we do it twice a month now at lunchtime but when i was teaching high school we did open mics in my class every day at lunch and uh and 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 to have everybody read it out loud when they hear each other sometimes somebody's like they hear this person and it's almost like friendly competition well, i can do that exactly uh do you have the kids critique you know what each other a little but i'm not you know the iowa writers workshop you know yeah. kind of kind of um you know they really established the whole new criticism in that whole thing and I've done a little tiny bit of that, but I actually usually say like if they have them read it to each other, you know, find a couple of things that you really like and then maybe one thing that they could work on. But I'm I'm more on the positive. Like the thing is, uh, my idea is that um, if you give them more of the positive side, as time goes on, they'll kind of weed out the bad stuff anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. I I. I never wanted to say anything negative about my classmates. Yeah, exactly. because we know how hard it is Man. to 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 write even one good line. Mm -hmm. And so, who the hell am I, especially when I was in college? Mm -hmm. Like, who am I to say this is bad or good? Mm -hmm. Because Lord knows, if if I had picked any of the songs on the radio, I wouldn't have picked hardly any of them. Yeah, and yet they sold millions. Yeah, so. I'm glad that you're you, doing it that way. You know what? Thank you for, I really appreciate you saying that too, because I really, um, I found in the last few years that I am not the red pen guy. There's enough red pen people out there. I'm the guy who makes, who they, they'd be like, Oh, I used to write poems in the eighth grade. I'm the guy that gets them back up again, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and you know what, you know, it's that joy. We got to keep that joy, man. The joy is the secret or one of the secrets, you know? Okay, let's wrap it up with this. Uh, people who live in L.A., what are they sleeping on? What are they missing out on? Because I, I hear people say, oh, you live in Hollywood, you must go to Griffith Park all the time. It's like, yeah, but don't you want to hear about the secret spots? You know, it's, no, this is, this is going to sound kind of funny, but you know, one of the biggest secrets in L.A., and maybe, maybe you know about it, but um, you can go to the top of City Hall for free. I've never done this. You, I was just there last week. You can go. I've done it with a lot of school groups. There's an observation deck up there. Uh -huh. You can go to the top of City Hall for free. You got to go through the LAPD screener. Uh, you, say, you, you do got to put your. Oh, uh, you mean you mean the metal detector? Uh huh. You got to put your keys on the conveyor belt. All right, that's fine. Um, when you say LAPD, I'm like, hmm. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Uh, but, so but you, you can go, go through metal detector, and then you go up two elevators. You go an elevator up to the 22nd floor. Then on the 22nd floor, you go up to the 26th floor. You go up a staircase. You're up on the 27th floor, and there's an observation deck up on the top there, and it's free. How's and it look up there? It's a beautiful view. You know, anytime we would start a school tour up there, I've actually even done poetry with students up there before. You, uh, we start a tour at City Hall, and it's it's a masterpiece from there. I mean, it's just to so I, I first went up there. 12, 13 years ago or something like that. But in the late 60s, my dad actually used to work for the Department of Re uh, Recreations and Parks, and he used to work in City Hall. Uh, and uh, he hasn't been up there in 50 years. I'm about to go up there with him, my kids and I and him. But uh, city to go to the top of City Hall 
is something a lot of people are sleeping on. There's a bunch of other things too, but I mean, it's just a really cool, iconic thing. And, and uh, City Hall is 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 a masterpiece, an art, te- art deco. You are married to a uh, Japanese flight attendant. Yeah. Yeah, and she hasn't been a flight attendant in over ten years now. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like being a raider. You're always a raider. <laughs> um, you got to tell us some good sushi spots, you know, both in Monterey Park and outside of Monterey. Well, you Park. know, one of the best sushi spots, and it's actually owned by um, is is a place called Matsumoto, and Matsumoto, the sushi chef, is is a family friend of ours, and he is dynamite. And uh, where's where's he Mas- at? Matsumoto is on just a, generally. It's just east of the Beverly Center. What? Yeah, it, it, and and it's uh, um, it's only been open a couple of years, but Keanu Reeves is there, and uh, and uh, Charlene there, you know, Charlize Theron, and uh, on Beverly, I believe, just a little bit east of the yeah, Beverly Center. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and you don't think why? Blah, 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 we haven't blah. been uh, there. Used to you're you're too young for this, but there used to be a really good dance club called the Odyssey. And that was on Beverly. Just yeah, yeah, Beverly. Yeah, Beverly, and it is exactly uh, Orlando. Beverly and Orlando. Orlando. Mats- yeah, Matsumoto. Yeah. Is it really expensive? It's it's pretty expensive. It's, so it's you save not, up. It's not as bad as some, but it's pretty. But Matsumoto is killer. And uh, we had um, a guy who was almost like my wife's uncle. He had originally been the sushi chef of my in-laws' restaurant uh, named Ichi, but he just retired Ichiro, and he was a dynamite sushi chef. And he had his own spot in Pasadena, but he just retired because he's in the seventies. His name was what? Ichi Ichiro. Was was his spot like right by the park? Uh, what is that? Is that Central Park? Yeah, yeah. It was on uh, um, Raymond. It was on Raymond. Yeah, and I've it, eaten there. Yeah, he was really good sushi chef. Didn't he have originally a place in Hollywood across from the Fonda? He was, and then he moved. He was. Um, he. We're being nerds here, everybody. He, it's funny now. My wife always says that what was really great about Ichi was that he had grown up in Tokyo and had been trained in Japan. But his English was good enough that he was Americanized too, and he kind of was the best of both worlds. Where he 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 was very, you know, it's funny like the the hardcore sushi aficionados, like my wife and her friends, like if it's not Japanese owned, they're they're mad. You right, know, you, it's got to be Japanese owned. But this guy Ichi was was Japanese, but was Americanized enough to have fun with people. And right, really good. I, I think I've eaten at both of his places. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And when he went was in Pasadena, it was almost like he was out of place because mm-hmm. that weird little corridor mm-hmm. wasn't a fancy place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like Old Town Pasadena. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. just near the subway stop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, the, exactly. the Gold right. Line spot. That's exactly right. And uh, But we, we went in there, and there was no monkey business. Yeah. He, I don't even think there was a menu. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the real deal. Yeah. Know? Sometimes we do the omakase. And, yeah, uh, that's Matsumoto is is primarily omakase. You don't have to do that, but a lot of that's what they. So about a hundred bucks a head, hundred and fifty bucks a head. Yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah. you save up. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, okay. We went for my birthday a couple months back. You know, we go a couple times a year, and they actually have a couple of my wife's paintings in there. And uh, really, so. So you get some hors d'oeuvres for free. Yeah, you get some paintings of, <laughs> yeah. of Mrs. the Poet. Yeah, in there. yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. Mike, God bless you. Thank you, Tony, for having me do you, here. Do you have a, a poem for the road for us? Yeah, you know what? Let me just do a very short one. Um, build the bridge, lay down the bricks, fill in the ridges, stack the sticks, feed the fire, consider the cost, take it up higher. The city is ours. L.A. Yeah. 
Thank you, Tony. Thank you, brother. Thank you. God bless you, my God man. Bless you. Thank you. Where can people uh, find you if they want to uh, find you? You know, uh, find me at Mike the Poet LA, um, at Instagram, at Twitter. Uh, um, my most recent book, Letters to My City, is in, in various independent bookstores around town, and I'm working on a couple more books. And we're always doing poetry events. There's hardly a week that goes by or two weeks that goes by that I'm not doing something at a library or a bookstore or a gallery or something. There's always something. Anybody out there that's interested, there is a really dynamic literary scene in L.A. And it's to the point where you can almost do poetry or see poetry almost every night out of the week if you wanted. I think it's phenomenal that you're a native Angelino. And you love it as much as you were brand new to this place. Man, yeah. You know what? I, I love L.A. And, I mean, there's there's a lot to do and a lot to say. And, you know, I've also learned that, you know, some of it is is we ha um, If you heard of Nelson Algren, well, you're a Chicago man. Yeah. Uh, Nelson Algren, you know, had a, this line that, you know, um, to you got to love before you critique something, you got to love it. You know, you know, and, and, and so I think that... Uh, even there are things that we want to work on around L.A. It starts from loving it. Well, we love you, Mike. Love you, too, Tony. Thank God you, bless you. God bless you, man. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll see you uh, at the sushi bar. See you, man. See you out there. See you <laughs> see at the sushi bar. Thank you, bro. All right, man. Wasn't Mike great? You know who we'd write a poem to? Our Patreons. Hang in. I'm going to. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan... Have some sushi Ike on us. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, and a special shout out to Mr. George Wright. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you got to do is PayPal's 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website or the Medium blog forever. You'll also be given a number to denote how early you got in. For example, Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Number two is the man, George Wright. Number three is Rita Joanne. Four, Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Hotton. Six, Rob Baker. And it's got to be hot out there. Seven, Kev Chang. Eight is Brenda Garcia. And nine, John Griffiths. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. And uh, expect something a little special from the universe. Want to support us, but you're popping bottles just because you're just so happy whenever you watch TV? Uh, you can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. Tweet something really nice about us. You know, I haven't seen a really nice tweet about us in a while, so tweet something nice. And then include the link here in LA.com at the end of your tweet. And anytime you see me tweet about an episode, which I do a couple times a week, oh my God, retweet it. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell your friends how Here in LA is spelled and it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify and Amazon and that we have dudes who uh, uh, talk about weed in the newspaper. We got poets going on now. Uh, soon we're going to have an OnlyFans model. Tell your friends all of these kind of things. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who said he really loved this episode, Mr. Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. 
Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and bookstores and cafes and bars who support the spoken word. Roses are red. My favorite Toro is blue. Thank you, bookstores. We love you.